Excuse me. Good morning to you all. If you would turn to Revelation chapter 12. We just sang about the bitter bud. The bloom will be sweet, but there is a bitter bud. And Revelation 12 is about those kinds of things. It's about the difficult things in life. We've talked a lot about difficult things in our sharing time. And Revelation 12 is one of those passages that kind of pulls back the veil for us and highlights uh, for us why things are as difficult as they are in so many ways. And so let me read for us uh, Revelation 12. We'll read the chapter as we continue working our way through Revelation. And um, we'll ask the Lord uh, to apply it to our lives. So Revelation 12, 1. It says, A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. And she was with child. And she cried out, being in labor and in pain to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems. And his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child." And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness, where she had a place prepared by God, so that there she would be nourished for 1,260 days. And there was war in heaven, Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon, The dragon and his angels waged war, and they were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil, and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. He who accuses them before our God day and night. And they overcame him because of the blood of the lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life even when faced with death. For this reason, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you having great wrath knowing that he has only a short time. And when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman so that she could fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. And the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman so that he might cause her to be swept away with the flood. But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and drank up the river which the dragon poured out of his mouth. So the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her children, who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we do pray and ask that you'd help us to understand what your word says, and we pray that you would apply it to our own lives, that you'd help us to see ourselves and what your word is saying. Pray that you would call us to trust you and enable us to trust you in the ways that we need to trust you in light of all the mysterious things that are going on, all the mysterious ways in which you're at work. And we pray that you would help us to be delivered from distraction during this time, delivered from deception during this time, delivered from the own deadness of our own hearts. And we pray that you would speak to us in fresh ways, give us fresh manifestations of your uh, love to us, fresh measures of grace that we might trust you and love others like you do more and more. So we thank you for your word. We thank you for this time in it. 
and we pray for your uh, mercy upon us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, well, I just want to remind you that um, as we work through the book of Revelation, the book of Revelation is a picture book, which means if you go to heaven or if you see the devil, he's not going to look just like you see him portrayed in this book. And heaven isn't going to be just like it's portrayed in this book either because it's a picture book. It's a book of pictures that is meant to convey to us truths, things that are real. It isn't a fiction book. It's a book about reality, but it's picturing for us things that go beyond our comprehension in so many different ways. And these pictures are meant to communicate a a multitude of things uh, in just one picture, just like it Uh, They have said a picture paints a thousand words. So a picture is something that is meant to convey a lot of things in one concise uh, way. And so that's what the book is, um, that's how the book is constructed. And it's helpful to keep that in mind lest we somehow um, mistake the pictures of Jesus and God and the devil and think that they look just like that. What we need to do is we need to, as C.S. Lewis would say, we need to see through those things and see the reality behind those things. Um, Secondly, the book is about Jesus. You recall at the very beginning of the book, in verse 1 of chapter 1, it says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed or happy, truly happy is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. Now the word revelation there means unveiling, the unveiling of Jesus Christ. And the question is, what does this book unveil? Well, it, in a sense, takes the sheet off of Jesus and all of his glory. We don't see Jesus right now. We don't see him enthroned But the book of Revelation reveals to us the glorified Christ in so many ways. But it also reveals to us other things that are going on. Reveals to us the kinds of things that are happening in history. It reveals to us the work of the devil in history. It unveils what is really taking place in history. And so we see that, especially in the book, excuse me, the chapter chapter 12, Uh, as it talks about the great cosmic uh, battle that is taking place. But as you work through the book, uh, the revelation of Jesus centers on the fact that he's the king of kings, that he's the good shepherd, that he's the lord of history, and he rules and reigns over all these things the book talks about, the seals and the trumpets and the bold judgments, and ultimately he is the lord of heaven on earth. And that's how the book ends. And so... There's no doubt that God wants us, especially through this book, to see Jesus and not to miss who he is and what he's doing right now and what he's going to do one day and how that relates to you and I in light of all the things that we're going through right now, whether it's painful things or um, changing things or whatever it might be. It's also helpful to realize that... um, This book, I believe, was written to every generation of Christians. Some people think the book is just primarily about the first century. Some people think the book is really only about the last century. Some think it it covers all of history. I think it includes all of that. I believe what's reflected in this book says something to every generation of Christians. And one way or the other, the kinds of things that we see in the book of Revelation were definitely in one sense, fulfilled in the first century, reflected throughout history, but will ultimately be fulfilled right before Jesus comes back. And in all of this, as we kind of highlighted during the sharing time, verse 5 of Revelation 1 says, talking about Jesus, the Jesus we need to see, that he is the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, and the one who loves us. Now put all that together. He's faithful. He's the, he's the firstborn to be raised from the dead. He's the ruler of everything, including all the kings of the earth. And he loves us. And he has 
released us from our sins by his blood. The book of Revelation, in a sense, is written to unbelievers by warning them that there is a judgment to come. That sin will be judged. Just because God is gracious and merciful now doesn't mean sin will not ultimately be judged. And the book of Revelation makes that very, very clear. For believers in Jesus who's, who have been released from their sins and forgiven of their sins, then we need to be reminded that in the midst of whatever circumstances we're going through, the pain, the difficulty, the suffering, the hatred of the world, that Jesus loves us, God loves us, that the suffering we're going through and the hatred of the world does not mean God doesn't love us or that Jesus doesn't love us. And so the book of Revelation is meant to encourage us in light of that. One of the reasons why I picked uh, working through Daniel and Revelation is because Daniel speaks a lot about the sovereignty of God. Revelation obviously speaks a lot about the issue of how do we respond to persecution and suffering. And it's very possible that we as Christians in this nation will know certain kinds of suffering in the next 10 to 20 years that we have not known. And the Bible is meant to prepare us for that. It's kind of like boot camp before we get into the battle. We need to hear what the Bible has to say to us so that we can be prepared when things do get difficult. And that's my heart in going through the book of Revelation, the book of Daniel, and these other books is to pray that God would prepare me and prepare you for whatever suffering uh, that might be on the horizon. The reality is there's going to be suffering, but there may be more anti-Christian suffering in the future than we've had to experience in our own country. Well, Revelation 12 highlights uh, several things. One thing it highlights is that um, there's a story unfolding. History is a story, and it's a story um, that starts with God, who created everything. And it is followed by a fall that involved Satan. And it involves a promise of sending a Savior into the world. And that Savior comes into the world and Satan tries to kill him, but is not able to do that. And that Savior comes into the world and lives and dies and rises again and goes to the very throne of the universe And he commissions his people to proclaim redemption. And in the midst of that, Satan is not a happy camper. Satan is angry that he has been dethroned in certain ways. But it's all moving toward a consummation. And so that's what we see played out in this chapter is the story behind the story. There's a story behind your story. There's a story behind my story. This is the story behind all of our stories. It's the story behind the story of the world. And what we see in this chapter is that if you just simply read through the book of Revelation, it's not strictly chronological. It's kind of like if you ever watched a movie where the movie uh, is moving forward, but every so often they use flashbacks to give you more information about what's going on. And this is a kind of flashback in Revelation 12, it adds information to a story that's moving forward. Um, another thing, the final thing that I would say is that the kinds of things that are going on here are meant to um, cause us to look up for our redemption draweth nigh. Uh, Jesus said that we are to be looking for indications that his return is near. Doesn't mean that we're always going to get it right. There have been plenty of godly men who thought Jesus was going to come back in their generation, and they were wrong about that. But they were not wrong to look for it, and they were not wrong to wonder if maybe this is an indication that Jesus is about to return. Part of that is Paul talks about the fact in 2 Corinthians 4 that we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. We're to look beyond just our own circumstances, the the circumstances of our country, and we're to look to the things that aren't seen. And what isn't seen? Well, the woman and the dragon 
and the sun and the angels and the war. That's not seen. We're to look beyond what is seen and focus on what is unseen because that tells us what is truly going on. Obviously, a lot of uh, children like dragon stories, and there's a history of dragon stories. One of the odd things in our day and time is that uh, dragons have become uh, more tame, you know, like movies like How to Train Your Dragon or Puff the Magic Dragon, you know. Uh, things like that make dragons seem uh, sort of friendly and, and nice to have around. But historically, dragons were not seen that way. Historically, dragons were a picture of evil. They were threatening, and that's why you have legends like St. George and the Dragon. And in that story, you've got a village who's being terrorized by a dragon, and he's extorting things from the people. He says, I want, you know, I want your, your treasures. I want your livestock. They run out of treasures and livestock, and he begins requiring a human sacrifice on an annual basis. And finally, uh, one way or the other, a princess is picked to be the human sacrifice one year, and the people finally say, no, the princess cannot be sacrificed. And St. George rides to the rescue, rescues the princess, and kills the dragon. Well, the reality is the dragon always requires human sacrifice, whether it's abortion or other kinds of human sacrifice. He's a murderer from the beginning and the father of lies. That's what the dragon does. And so we want to look at this dragon story. It's a real dragon story and ask God to encourage us through it. The first uh, section is verses 1 through 6 where it talks about signs in heaven and two signs are mentioned. There's the sign of the pregnant woman and there's the sign of the, the great red dragon. Now a sign can be a number of different things that points beyond itself. It can tell you what's coming. It can tell you what you're looking at. If you're looking at an abstract painting and there's a sign or a title that tells you what it is, then you say, okay, it's pretty abstract. I don't know what the guy had in mind when he, he painted that. But the sign or the title gives you some indication of what is really going on. It's kind of a explanation. And that's the way I understand these two signs that are being talked about here is God is saying, let me give you an explanation of why there are wars in the world, why there is a war going on right now between uh, with Russia and uh, Ukraine. Why is that war happening? It's because of another war. Uh, why is there a conflict on, human, on a human level between people? It's because of another war that's taking place. And so God has given us, given us unveiling another explanation of what is really taking place. And so you've got the pregnant woman and the great red dragon. And it says the woman is in labor and then she's about to give birth and the dragon is just waiting. You can see in the picture right there, waiting for the, uh, the woman to give birth so he can consume, devour the child. And that's a picture of what actually happened when Jesus was born. Because the child that's born is going to rule all the nations. It's a very clear uh, picture of Jesus. And yet when Jesus was born, what did Herod do? He slaughtered the babies because he was trying to kill Jesus. He was trying to kill the Messiah. But who was behind Herod? The dragon was behind Herod. The dragon was trying to consume the child. That was the story behind the story. And as I mentioned, it says in John 8, 44, Jesus says, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So the dragon, later on in the chapter, we know that's the devil, that's Satan, that's the serpent from the Garden of Eden. He is a murderer and he is a liar. And those two things are important to keep in mind because that's how he seeks to thwart what God is doing. is through murder and through lies. And so... Um, 
Satan is not victorious. Obviously, Jesus is born. And you notice in the story, there's no reference to his life and death and resurrection. There's just simply a reference to the fact that he ascended to the Father and took his place on the throne. And that he rules over all with a rod of iron. Actually, the word for rule there is shepherd. He shepherds everything uh, with absolute sovereignty, a rod of iron. Nobody does anything apart from the authority of Jesus Christ. He rules perfectly. He cannot be thwarted, and no one can contradict his will. That is the confidence of the saints in all kinds of ways. The interesting thing is that it says... After the um, child is born, ascends to the throne, then the woman, it says in verse 6, she flees into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that there she would be nourished for 1,260 days. The 1,260 days, the 42 months, the time, times, and half a time refers to the same period of time. It's understood to be a limited amount of time of persecution when evil is allowed to go rampant. And that's the picture there. And yet it says the woman goes into the wilderness. Now, who else went into the wilderness? Israel left Egypt and went into the wilderness. The wilderness was a barren place. And it was a place where for them to survive, God had to rain bread from heaven had to bring in quail and drop it at their feet, and had to bring water out of rocks. But it says she went to a place that was barren and hard and difficult, and she was nourished. Which means, you know what? God isn't um, tied down to your job. He's not tied down to your circumstances. Uh, Your job can change. Your circumstances can change. You can go from what appears to be a really nice place to a a place that appears more like a desert. And the same God rules and reigns. The same Jesus has a rod of iron over all of that where he has promised to love you. He has promised to nourish you. He's promised to meet your needs you're, you need not worry. You need not fear. Uh, he is ruling and he is providing for his people. Um, there's all kinds of stories in the Old Testament. Elijah was fed by ravens uh, beside a brook. Um, all kinds of things in the Old Testament speak to God's provision for people in unusual ways when they're in very, very hard situations. And so we have to ask ourselves, what do, I, what do I think is really required for God to provide for me? What do I think is really required for God to nourish me, to give me water, to give me bread, to give me meat? Um, there's a place um, in the Old Testament where the, the children of Israel say, you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. And the reality is we're more like Israel than we like to admit we're tempted to believe that God has put us in a hard place to kill us, to starve us, when he's brought us there to show us that he can meet our needs even in the desert place, that he will not fail to meet our needs. And so that's why it says in 1 Kings 17, 4, uh, God tells Elijah, I have commanded the ravens to provide for you there. God commands the birds, he commands the storm, he commands everything to bring nourishment to his children. Um, There's another question that the people of Israel asked in the wilderness. They said, can God prepare a table in the wilderness? They actually asked that. Can God prepare a table in the wilderness? And what does David say in Psalm 23? The Lord who's ruling over everything like a shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. 
Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me. Where? In the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The Bible says in different ways, God meets our needs in the places where we would least think he could meet or would meet our needs, like the desert or like in the middle of my enemies who are wanting to kill me. God prepares a table in the wilderness. God prepares a table in the presence of my enemies. God rules and reigns. George Mueller is a great testimony to God's provision. I love reading about George Mueller, and I've shared this story before, but you remember the story where all the kids are sitting at their table ready for breakfast, and their plates are empty, their cups are empty. They have nothing to eat. George Mueller gets up and says, you know, we've got to go to school soon, so let's pray that God will provide for us so you can eat and go to school. So he prays, God, would you provide what we need? Prays very simply, and then within a few minutes, there's a knock on the door, and there's the baker who says, I woke up in the middle of the night, just felt like the Lord wanted me to bake you a bunch of bread. Here it is. And a few minutes later, another knock on the door, and the milkman says, I was just passing by, and I broke down. I've got to fix my wagon. I need to unload this milk. You you wouldn't need any milk, would you? And God provided. And George Mueller said he actually operated the way he did in the orphan ministry that he had. He never told people about his needs. He did tell people about how God provided for his needs, but he didn't tell people about his needs He simply prayed. And the reason why he did that was he said the primary reason why I even established the orphan house and the reason why I operated the way I did was for this reason, so that it might be seen that God is faithful still and hears prayer still. That was the main reason he had an orphanage. He loved children, wanted to care for them, but more than that, he wanted to show that God can provide For people in the desert, God can provide for people in the midst of his enemies. God can be trusted. We can trust him in the desert. We can trust him in the midst of our enemies. And Revelation 12 is very much about being in the midst of your enemies. It's about having a dragon that's after you. Well, the second section, uh, verses 7 through 12, uh, starts moves into a discussion of war in heaven. Now, obviously... A heavenly war seems like an oxymoron, right? It's kind of like a deafening silence or organized chaos or something like that. Heavenly war, we think of heaven being something where there is no more war. There is no conflict, and that's true. But what's going on here is that this war is a spiritual war. That's what it means by in heaven. It means um, not on earth, but There's a war happening in the spiritual realm, and that's what it's referring to. And it talks about angelic warriors, uh, some who are good, some who are not. You've got Michael and his angels, got the devil and his angels. If you read Daniel chapter 10, it's interesting. You see references to an angel appearing to Daniel and talking about having this spiritual battle with the prince of uh, Persia and uh, the prince of Greece and all this sort of thing, you realize, wow, uh, there, there are things going on in the spiritual realm that I'm not even aware of. And so uh, we see this being reflected here in the passage, and it says in the battle, Satan and his demons, his angels, lose the battle. And he's thrown down. Four different times it talks about him and his angels being thrown down. And the question is, what is all that about? Well, if you remember in Job, um, Satan shows up and appears with the other angels before God. God talks to Job and says, have you noticed Job? Um, God talks to Satan and says, have you noticed Job, my servant? And Satan says, oh, yeah, but, you know, he's you no know, big deal. The only reason why he worships you is because you bless him so much. Who wouldn't worship you? All you have to do is take away all of his stuff and he'll curse you to his face, to your face. 
same kind of thing is happening in uh, Zechariah chapter 3, where it talks about Joshua the high priest who's standing before the Lord in dirty clothes. And it says Satan is there at his right hand to accuse him. Basically to say, this man is not worthy of your love and your blessing. Who's saying the same thing about Job? Job, you know, he's just just a mercenary. He's just, you know, he's doing what he's doing to get what he really wants. He doesn't want you. He wants your stuff. Take away your stuff and he won't want you. Those are accusations of Job isn't what he really appears to be. Joshua, the high priest, isn't really what he appears to be. The people of God on earth aren't really what they appear to be. They don't love you. They love your stuff. They love what you give them. Just take it away and they'll all curse you to your face because you're not worthy of their love. It's not about you. It's about your stuff. That's the accusation of the enemy. And that's what he wants to do. He wants to bring all of us to the point of cursing God and revealing that, yeah, we really didn't love and trust God. We just wanted what he could give us. Ultimately, even those that he comes to know have a real faith, he still tries to overwhelm them with condemnation, to make them ineffective, to make them silent. And that's why Paul spends so much time in the book of Romans saying things like, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. You notice in Revelation 12, it says Jesus was taken to the throne of God. And there was a war that took place and Satan was dethroned, so to speak. He was, uh, there was, there were grounds removed. What grounds were removed? His grounds of accusation against the saints. When Jesus lived and died and rose again, he could no longer say, God, you're wrong for blessing them and loving them and receiving them. They ought to die. They ought to go be with me. They ought to be in hell. Now, he cannot say that because Jesus paid it all. And all to him I owe. That's why Jesus could say to the 70 who came back saying, you know, we're excited. We got to cast out demons. That was really fun. And Jesus said, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. The mystery of Jesus was the point at which Satan, Satan's hold on un, the unbelieving world was broken. And the kingdom of God began to break in and will be consecrate, uh, consecrated one day. Well, it goes on to talk in verses 11 and 12 of the fact that... Um, Christians are meant to be overcoming losers. And what I mean by that, it says um, in verse 11, they overcame him because of the blood of the lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life even when faced with death. They could lose their life and still win. They could lose their possessions and still win. They could lose their reputation and still win. They could lose their job and still win. It says early in, the, in uh, Revelation uh, 2 and 3, at the end of every letter to the church, it says, uh, it speaks to those who overcome. To those who overcome, I will give these blessings. What does it mean to overcome? It means in the face of the dragon, in the face of temptation, in the face of trials, you continue trusting Jesus. And you continue loving in the way that you're called to love. You don't stop. You don't give up. You don't walk away. You don't run away. You're like Peter who says, Lord, where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. I have no place else to go. You're the only one that I can put my hope in. And so it raises the question for all of us, are we willing to lose in order to win? 
what if things do get tough in our country? What if we begin to lose our job because we're a Christian? What if we begin to lose relationships because we're Christians? What if we begin to lose our freedom because we're a Christian? What if we begin to lose our lives because we're a Christian? Are we willing to lose in order to win? In 1 Peter 5, Peter says, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So in Revelation 12, the devil is pictured as a dragon. Here in 1 Peter 5, he's pictured as a lion. What does it mean that he is roaming around looking for someone to devour? How does he devour people? What does that look like? The next verse says, But resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your children, excuse me, your brethren who are in the world. He devours by two ways, by suffering and by lies. Here, Peter references, resist him with your faith as you go through suffering, just like other believers are going through suffering. We are tempted to walk away from Christ when things get hard, when it starts to cost us to follow Christ. We are tempted to walk away. We're tempted to curse God and die, like Job's wife told Job to do when suffering comes. And so God, excuse me, uh, Satan devours people through putting them through the ringer like he did with Job. He was trying to devour Job by taking away his family, by taking away his possessions. Job would not curse God. Did he struggle? Yes. Did God have to rebuke him in the end? Yes. But he did not curse God. He did not walk away from God. And so we won't respond perfectly either. But if we're his, we will continue. We will persevere. The other passage is in Ephesians 6, where it talks about the battle that we're in, that we're in a spiritual battle. It says in Ephesians 6.10, Finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you may will be able to stand firm against the schemes or the strategies of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. The reality is, Satan is a murderer and a liar. That's what Jesus said. That's what he is which, is, which means that's what he does. He murders and he lies. He tortures and he kills. He tells people things that aren't true to lead them away from God and Christ. That's what he does. If he can't get you to believe the lie, he will try to kill you. That's what the dragon does. That's what, that's what Satan does. And the good news is, is that he's a defeated foe. That we don't have to fear. Should we respect him? Yes. What does it mean to respect him? It means I seek to do what it says in Ephesians 6. Put on the whole armor of God. If you respect a foe, if you respect someone you're going into battle with, you don't just walk in there without any armor on and just plop out of bed and say, okay, okay let's go. <laughs> you know, you, you put on your armor and you're ready to fight. You take it seriously. We should be serious. We should realize that there is a devil. There, there are spiritual forces that want to deceive us and destroy us. That's no joke. That is the truth. 
That is the world in which we live. We don't have to be afraid about that, but we should not be naive. We should not think that it doesn't matter whether or not I spend time in the Word. It doesn't matter whether or not I pray. It doesn't matter or not whether I come to church on a regular basis. It doesn't matter. Those, those things don't matter. Yes, they do. Yes, they do. There's a reason why God says that we're to meditate day and night in his truth, that we're to pray without ceasing, that we're to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. Is it because he just wants us to follow the rules? He just likes to control us? It's because he loves us and we're in a war. We're in a war, truly. But we don't have to be afraid. We're to be joyful. The Bible says rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks. And the reason why we rejoice in the war is because Revelation 12 makes it very, very clear that the enemy of our souls is a defeated foe. Um, Martin Luther uh, supposedly had experiences with the devil, throwing an ink um, can of some sort at the devil, so to speak, while he was trying to translate uh, the Bible into German. Uh, supposedly, Satan so- showed up at one time and be- began listing his sins, and and uh, Martin Luther simply said, think harder, I think you missed some. And so he listed more sins, and, and uh, Martin Luther says, now with a red pen right over that list, the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. Go ahead and list my sins, but make sure you understand that they're all covered. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. The blood of Jesus is how we are victorious over the devil. Well, Martin Luther wrote uh, his famous hymn, and if you listen to it, it's about the devil and our spiritual battle. He says, A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe does seek to work us woe. That's the devil, our ancient foe. His craft and power are great, great red dragon, and armed with cruel hate, on earth is not his equal. Did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. You ask who that may be, Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth, his name from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. We are victorious through Jesus. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word will fail him. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. That goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. What is he saying? They may kill me. They're actually trying to, Martin Luther would say. But that's okay. That's all right. Satan's a defeated foe. And I have an inheritance, which we sang about this morning, in Jesus. Now, some people have wondered when he says, his rage we can't endure, uh, the rage of Satan, lo, his doom is sure, one little word shall fail him. People have wondered, I wonder what Martin Luther had in mind when he said one little word. I don't know that anybody knows for sure what one little word he might have had in mind, but there is one word in Greek that Jesus said on the cross that's translated into three words, and that is, it is finished. That one word, what does that mean? It means he's purchased his people, their sins are forgiven, Satan is a defeated foe, one day all evil and suffering will be gone. The work that had to be done to accomplish all of that is done. It's just a matter of time before it's implemented. Well, the last section, and I'll just touch on this very quickly, is about the war on earth. We'll actually talk more about this when we get into chapter 13, because chapter 13 is actually more of an explanation on the last part of Revelation 12. But not only was there war in heaven, but there's war on earth. 
And a Christianity not worth dying for is no Christianity at all. Again, uh, as I said, on the face of things, we see conflicts in Ukraine with Russia. We see conflicts between people. The Lord is saying here, there is a conflict between all, behind all other conflicts. It's like the show uh, Masked Singer. You know, who's, who's the guy behind the mask that's doing that singing? Well, ultimately, behind the mask of all that's happening in this world, conflict-wise, is the ultimate conflict. It's the war between the dragon and the sun. It's the war between King Jesus and the dragon. That's the ultimate conflict that is playing out before our lives. It's interesting that it talks about the fact in verse 14 that the woman is being persecuted, um, but she is borne away by the two wings of the great eagle. Many people see um, the Exodus story in this story. And in the Old Testament, God says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. It's a picture of God's care for his people. Now, when you think about their experience in the, in the wilderness and going through the things they went through, you couldn't tell that God was, you know, carrying them like an eagle. It, it looked like he was more dragging them along the ground. I say that because that's what it feels sometimes. It feels like we're just being dragged along the ground by forces beyond our comprehension and control. God says, let me tell you what's really going on. Let me unveil for you what's going on. I am carrying you on the wings of an eagle. And I'm taking care of you in ways that you can't even imagine. That is the truth about what's happening. Don't go with your feelings. Believe the truth. Believe what's been revealed to you. Well, the whole picture of uh, the flood coming out of the dragon's mouth is more than likely a picture of um, deception, a flood of deception, lies, and those kinds of things. But it says the earth drank that up, which is a picture of the fact that God uh, overcame uh, that deception in whatever way it needed to be overcome. And that's what it says in Isaiah 43, when you pass through the waters, God says, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. And then it goes on to talk about the war with uh, the woman and her children, which is a picture of the church. And we're going to get into Acts chapter 8, and that's what's being talked about here. It's about the persecution of the church. Well, let me just kind of conclude by asking the question, what, what is your Christianity like? What is my Christianity like? It says at the very end of verse 17 that the rest of her children are those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus, which is a picture of trust and love. To hold to the testimony of Jesus means I trust in the good news of the gospel. To keep the commandments means I seek to love in obedience to God's word. It's about trust and love. And the, the implication is that the people of God overcome the dragon who's trying to murder them and deceive them by continuing to trust the gospel, continuing to love in the ways that God calls them to love and not give in. A great testimony of that is John Patton, who was a missionary uh, to the New Hebrides Islands. He talks about all kinds of things that happened to him. His life was threatened almost daily, it seemed like, if you read his story. There was this one time this guy with a musket, you may remember, follows, follows him around with four, for four hours, threatening to shoot him. And he said, I just went around, did my normal routine, and just prayed that God would have mercy. And what he said about that was, he said, I realized that I was immortal till my master's work with me was done. The assurance came to me as if a voice out of heaven had spoken, that not a musket would be fired to wound us, not a club prevail to strike us, not a spear leave the hand in which it was held, vibrating to be thrown, not an arrow leave the bow, or a killing stone the fingers, without the permission of Jesus Christ, 
whose is all power in heaven and on earth. He rules all nature, animate and inanimate, and restrains even the savage of the south seas. So what is our comfort in the midst of a raging and enraged dragon? The son who loves us rules with an iron fist. Nothing will happen to us apart from his designs of love. And so the questions, two questions I just want to leave you with. Number one is, are you fighting? Are you fighting? Are you, are you fighting each day not to be deceived by the devil, not to be um, caught up in worldly philosophies, uh, not to give in to the pressures to compromise? Are you fighting? Fighting with the word, fighting with prayer, fighting with fellowship, real fellowship with other believers? Are you fighting? Or are you just coasting, oblivious to the war that you're in? I have to ask that myself. How am I fighting? How well am I fighting? And secondly, the other question is, whose side are you on? Martin Luther said, um, there's a man on our side, which which means we're on his side, which means there's a side to be on. There is the Michael and his angel side, and there is the devil and his angel side. There's two sides in this war. The question is, whose side am I on? And that depends on whether or not Jesus is my Lord and my Savior or is he someone that I don't want to be my Lord and my Savior. That's the question. Let's pray. Father, we just ask that you would speak to us this morning in light of where we are. We pray, Father, that you would help us to see that there is a real battle going on that goes beyond just what we can see. There are real serious matters at stake for each one of us in in light of the war that's taking place. But help us to see, most of all, that there is a Savior who is the Lord of everything, and he is able and willing to save anyone and everyone who turns from their sin and looks to him for salvation. And he's willing and able to help his people to fight this fight and to be faithful to the end. So, Father, help us to look to you in the ways we need to and to trust in you, Lord Jesus, in the ways we need to this morning. Please speak to us during this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.